Hello and thank you for joining us today. We'll wait just a moment while everyone logs in. Hello, this is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Reliability and thanks for joining us for this best practices webinar. You probably know Fluke is a test tools provider, and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite reliability tools from infrared cameras to vibration meters. But you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Connect. Our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems to drive connected knowledge. And of course, that knowledge depends greatly on best practices in condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies. And that's where we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. Before the presentation, we have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so your phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. We will be answering questions both during the presentation and afterwards during Q&A. So take a minute now to find the questions tool in the GoToWebinar dashboard. And please feel welcome to submit questions as we go. I will share as many of them as time allows for our presenter to answer. If we have unanswered questions at the end, we'll follow up with written answers. If you'd like to receive the slides from today's presentation, please let us know during the survey that will appear at the end of today's session. So don't hang up until the survey appears and you've answered the questions. We're also happy to send you a certificate of attendance after today's webinar. You'll see a question on the survey about getting a certificate. Answer yes and we'll send one to you. A recording of this webinar will be available on the excelx.com website within a day or two. And that is it for housekeeping. So now for the main event. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Tom Moriarty, founder of Allendale Mayor Inc. and a widely followed leadership and reliability expert. He'll be presenting on actually implementing a change. Tom is an expert in leadership, asset management, maintenance management, and reliability engineering. He's a licensed professional engineer, CMRP, ARP1, and has earned a Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering and Master of Business Administration degrees. A retired Coast Guard officer, he founded Allardyce Mayor Inc. in 2004, and he's been the Plant Services Magazine monthly capital, human capital columnist for 12 years, and he is the author of the book, The Productive Leadership System, Maximizing Organizational Reliability. Welcome, Tom, and thanks for being with us today. Hey, good morning, Leah. Good morning, everybody, and thanks for being here. So, Tom, you've been on this show before, and I know that you take a very scientific approach to leadership, and it has always felt to me very unique within the reliability community. Um, why is this approach so important for plant operations, and what led you to it? Okay, so um, after being in the Coast Guard for many years, and then in uh, 2003, I started a career in consulting, and what I kept finding uh, was that we would go into plants and we would work with uh, plant personnel to try to put in a, say, a computerized maintenance management software system or introducing condition-based maintenance or reliability-centered maintenance programs. And there were always problems with implementation. There was always an issue with how do you sustain things after you implement them. 
Uh -huh. And um, when you peel back the onion, um, what I found was that there were two, two main reasons. One, uh, organizations tended to not have a, a good basis of assigning accountability. And okay. the second piece was those that were accountable didn't tend to get good mentoring and good training in their leadership capabilities. And so those were the two things uh, that I find that caused the most problems uh, uh -huh. for organizations. So, uh -huh. I mean, at the heart of things, I started out as a backyard mechanic and I was, uh, you know, my early days in the Coast Guard, I was a machinery technician, right? So I worked on, I was like a millwright, think about it that way. Uh -huh. um, and then I became an officer, went through officer candidate school, and I was in engineering and uh, reliability management. Um, so then when I came out and started doing consulting in that world, um, you know, it was just a natural progression, uh, my background being more in the hard skills, mm -hmm. but recognizing that the soft skills are what is really causing the, the barriers to organizations uh -huh. performing at a higher level. Uh -huh. So, you know, kind of using an engineering approach to look at what are the root causes and then coming up with the solutions. Uh-huh. Excellent. Well, why don't I give the mic to you and you can take it away. Okay, fantastic. Uh, so as Leah mentioned, uh, I wrote a book called The Productive Leadership System. And as we introduced, um, as the introduction was happening, you heard a lot about uh, kind of my background and uh, kind of how I got to where I am and uh, why I wrote the book. Um, so uh, please feel free uh, to pick up a copy of it if you get the opportunity. Thank you. And uh, because this is recorded, I'm not going to go through each of these items, but um, just a little bit about uh, my business. I'm in Satellite Beach, Florida. Um, I was established, I established the business in 2004 as a Florida S Corp. I'm a veteran owned small business. Uh, when we were evaluated by Dun and Bradstreet, we were uh, considered among the best consulting firms ever rated. Um, we do work across all sorts of uh, communities of practice. Uh, and I do what I call cross-pollination, right? So I'll take best practices in oil and gas and I'll go to research universities where they're primarily uh, facilities management, where they may not have been exposed to the same things and vice versa, right? So there's good practices in all communities. So I try to uh, assimilate those across the communities of practice. But I do, of course, organizational reliability, uh, productive leadership, physical asset management, maintenance management, reliability engineering, uh, do assessments and action planning, RCM, FMEAs, root cause, all those sorts of things. So you can study that more in, in, at your leisure uh, when this becomes uh, uh, posted. Okay, so today's discussion is actually implementing a change. And this is, as we said during the introduction, a lot of times organizations are just not great at putting a change in place and maintaining it. So that's what I wanted to uh, talk about today. So think about a scenario. So you identify something that can be improved. Maybe you wanna put in a new condition-based maintenance program, maybe defect elimination, maybe, uh, you know, a new CMMS or EAM system, whatever that might be. You think about it and you decide what do we need to change in order to do this implementation. 
Now you need to implement the change. So now you consider your options and you become a bit apprehensive. Are we going to be able to do this? And then you start thinking about, well, how do we start this? And when do we start it? And then what if we started and I get it wrong? And if I get it wrong, can I recover? So when I, before we get deep into this, we wanted to ask this first poll question. And what is the question is going to be, what is the most common way that you've learned to implement change? And some of the more common ones are John Cotter's eight-step process, uh, ProSide's ADCAR model, uh, Lewin's three-stage model, the unfreeze, change, and refreeze, uh, the GE's change acceleration process, or was it some other process that you've learned, uh, some procedure or methodology that you've learned for implementing change? So go ahead and answer this poll question for me. Now I'm going to add in here that if you are not currently using any of these four methods, that's fine, and you can you can select other. But we are hoping to get about 75% of the audience to vote on one of these, so that we have an idea of what type of change modeling you have experimented with. And uh, I do believe that Tom would say that any of these are just as good as the other. Is that correct, Tom? Well, you're stealing my thunder a bit, but yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, how are the results coming in? We've got 64% of the vote. And okay. let's see. We're just about at 70. Um, I'm going to close down the vote in about 10 seconds. There we go. All right, let's see what our answers look like. Okay, Tom, what do you make of this? Um, I can't see what the results are. I'm so sorry. We have 7% at the John Cotter model. We have 6% okay. at the Persiad car model, 5% at Lewin's three-stage model, and 3% at the GE change acceleration process, and 80% at other. And wow. that's with 70% okay. of the audience voting. Excellent. Okay. So uh, as, as Leah stole my thunder there a bit, Sorry. Uh, what I would say is these, these are the more common uh, change management models that are out there. But what I would say is that uh, it might shock you that it to me, it really doesn't matter which methodology or model that you use. So if there's 80% or more that are in the other category, that's fine. All I would say to you is that you should have a model that you use. The different, the difficulty is no matter what model you use, if you don't have accountability and you don't have leadership capability within the organization, then whichever change management model that you use, it, you're going to have difficulty implementing and sustaining the change. And vice versa, if you do have a good methodology for assigning accountability, and you do have good leadership capability within your organization, then any model that you choose will allow you to implement and sustain those changes. So that was pretty interesting. Thank you. We do indeed have some audience comments, Tom, uh, okay. to say that they actually really have not learned a process for this. They oh. really have not gone through this kind of coaching. Okay, very good. Well, um, like I said, this would the particular model. These are again just you know four models that are very popular models. 
Um, so you you know you could go back and read through these models. They um, they provide a good process or methodology for implementing change. And if you ask me, I would say that John Cotter's eight-step process is is probably the the most realistic. The ADCAR model is really more about individual change, working with an individual. Uh, ProSci also has another one that's for organizational change. Um, Lou Ellen's model, I mean, if you Google any of these, uh, you can find them on the internet. Uh, lots of stuff has been written about all of those four uh, methodologies. So um, again, the, the type of methodology that you use, really immaterial to me. It's more having the capability to carry them out is where what I'm getting at. Great. So okay. you feel like this is something that people can self-train on? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. All right. Okay, so let's move on. A um, couple of learning objectives for uh, culture change. The first thing is understanding what culture is, and I have a very simplistic model or, or uh, you know, methodology for describing that. The second thing is understanding how culture can be changed and then apply lessons um, to change culture now. So what is culture? Culture is simply what most people do most of the time. And what people do are behaviors. So when a person performs the same behavior often enough, it becomes a habit. And when most people have the same habit, that's what becomes the culture. So when we think about how we can change the culture, the first thing is we have to understand a relationship between short-term memories, long-term memories, and behaviors. So short-term memories come from experiences. So reading a book, uh, getting training, making observations, all those things load information into your short-term memory. Long-term memories happen when there's a thing called consolidation of short-term memories. That basically means converting a short-term to a long-term memory. And people carry out behaviors based on long-term memories. There's some, obviously, there's some uh, exceptions to that, like uh, a reaction, like uh, for a dangerous situation or when you put your hand on a hot stove, something like that, you can have an instantaneous behavior. But most of the behaviors that we see in the workplace are based on long-term memories. The key point here is that behaviors are observable. So when we talk about implementing a change, what we care about are the behaviors. So when we initiate short-term memories, they can. what you want to do is start with the end in mind. So what change do you want to make? you have to be able to describe what it is that you want the end state to look like. We then have to be able to communicate what we want the behaviors to look like. And we do that by creating corporate policies or processes and providing training on those policies and processes. We can also do it by writing a standard procedure, an SOP, and training on it. And then we can personally demonstrate or uh, demonstrate a technique or a methodology that we want people to follow. All these are ways that we load information into short-term memory. But short-term memory uh, memories can be lost in minutes or hours, right? So 
the whole idea is that if you don't use a short-term memory, that memory is going to be lost. So when we try to then convert that short-term memory into a long-term memory, there's four ways that we can do it. The first is called spaced repetition, and that's by repeating that short-term memory often enough that it consolidates and forms a long-term memory. Another way that we can do it is through engaging multiple senses where there's pattern hooks. And an example of this is when you were learning to drive a car, you were using multiple senses, your hands on the steering wheel, your feet on the pedals, your vision, you're seeing the relative speed between the vehicle and things outside of the vehicle. So you're engaging multiple senses. You're hearing the voice of the person who is helping you to learn how to drive. You feel acceleration and deceleration, right? All those things are engaging multiple senses. So that's what's that's one of the two ways that you can invoke a thing called pattern hooks. The second example of pattern hooks is by leveraging similar experiences. So if you have a new CMMS and there is computer-based training, so it gives you different scenarios and you can uh, play in sort of the sandbox and you can try different scenarios and maybe there's a, uh, a video or a, a booklet that work, walks you through each of the different uh, scenarios that you're going to need for operating the software. Those are leveraging similar experiences because your hands are on the keyboard, you're looking at the same screens. Uh, another example is uh, the military and, and uh, pilots use simulators. So immersing yourself in a uh, simulator that uh, mimics what you're going to be doing for real, that's another way. Um, the, least, uh, the, the least recommended method is undergoing emotionally charged events, right? So this is uh, this would be something like if you witness a car crash, or uh, I was in a plant um, a few years ago where they're constructing a uh, a platform above a uh, a filling line, and uh, the railings were not secure, and a unfortunate person leaned against the railing and went down about 18 feet onto the concrete floor. So you see events like that; those will lock things into your memory as well. Those will immediately convert a short term to a long term memory. Spaced repetition, though, is how we typically are going to do an implementation and sustainment of a, a change that we're going to make. So um, spaced repetition means telling folks what we want them to do and then coaching them and having them repeat it over and over again until it becomes a habit. So what we want to do to be able to take advantage of spaced repetition is we want to reinforce the behaviors that lead to the right habits and we wanna correct the behaviors that don't lead to the right habits. So remember I said earlier that behaviors are observable. Because they're observable, we can observe individual team member behaviors. We can reinforce the behaviors that lead to the right culture, and we can correct the behaviors that don't lead to the right culture. And so if we repeat the right behaviors often enough, then we create the right habits. And the right habits then will lead to the right culture. So one of the things that I'm going to suggest is that you focus on the level that you can have the most influence on, and that's for your direct reports. So if you're a shop supervisor, that means the team members in your shop. If you're a plant manager, that means the department heads that report to you. 
focus on that level that you can have the most influence. Another thing I'll say is that everyone has a personal style. You don't need to be a particular type of person to be successful at driving a, and implementing a change. You've heard the type A and type B personalities, right? Type A is, is kind of a high stress, you know, authoritarian type, and a type B is kind of a more laid back type, right? Either of those can be successful. One of the things that I'll talk about is that you need to be consistent at it, right? So in my book, I talk about uh, the five leadership attributes, and those are to be consistent, attentive, respectful, motivating, and assertive. And if you look at the first letters, they spell karma. And I know karma spelled with a K, not with a C. But if I, if I wanted to make it correct, I'd have to spell consistent with a K. So karma loss, so I'm probably going to pay for that. The two of them that I underlined here are attentive and assertive. So when I talk about attentiveness, that means watching for complying or non-complying behaviors. So when we put a process in place and we're coaching people, we want to watch. We want to see how they're doing. We want to be attentive. And assertive simply means letting people know that you noticed their behavior. Okay? So when we are giving people feedback, we're being assertive in giving them feedback. We want to give specific, not general feedback. And this is really a critical aspect to how you get change how you get a change implemented and sustained. So the first thing when I talk about specific, not general, is that you need to state the specific behavior that was observed. Now, again, that could be a positive reinforcement or it could be a corrective reinforcement, right? Um, the second thing is to express how that observation made you feel. And then the third thing is to state the reason why that behavior was important. So on a positive side, let's say that you're implementing a work management process and you're trying to get people to comply with closing out work orders correctly. If you've noticed one of the team members filling out or closing out a work order correctly, you could say something like, hey, I've noticed that you're putting in the proper parts data on the closed out work orders. That makes me feel great about our chances to get the right, uh, the right um, critical spares put into our store system. And the reason that's important is because if we don't have good data, then the plant manager is not gonna support us spending that money on critical spares. Now, if it was corrective behavior, you would say it similarly, you know, but from the opposite viewpoint, state the behavior that was observed. Hey, I've noticed that you're not closing out the work orders with the right parts usage data. I don't feel good about that because the plant manager is not going to be able to make a, a decision to support our request for additional critical spares, right? So you're not just giving them a generality, hey, you're not filling out the work order properly. You're giving them a specific. And what that does is it also lets them know that you're paying attention. You're watching, you're being attentive, and you're also being assertive. So you obviously must care about that, right? So you get a lot quicker response and a lot more, uh, you drive that short-term to long-term memory and that long-term memory becomes the behavior and that behavior starts forming a habit, okay? Tom, we have a quick question here. Sure. Um, why is it important to personalize, express how the, the observation made you feel, right? How, how, why, why does it need to be a personalized feeling there? 
Yeah, because um, it's a one-to-one -one relationship, right? It's the, the person talking to the other person. And when you're able to be right in front of them and look them in the eye, being able to tell them how it makes you feel, it personalizes it. It makes it so that it's harder for somebody to deny that it's not important. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks. It's a psychological thing. I, I, you know, we could go way deep into that, but essentially that's what it is. Um, okay, so when we talk about these reinforcing positive and corrective behaviors, um, what I wanted to say specifically about that is that there's two issues that um, are important here. One is the concept of span of control, right? So if you're a shop supervisor, you should have maybe eight to 12 direct reports. And the reason for that is that you cannot, you cannot be attentive and assertive. You can't have the time to do those things if you're trying to uh, manage 30 people. There's just not enough time of the, in the day to be able to do that. Same thing for, say, a senior manager to a supervisor or assistant manager. Those we tend to like to see the ratios uh, to be one manager to uh, two to five direct reports for the same reason. Um, and the other thing is time management. Uh, in my book and in my other workshops, I talk uh, extensively about five leadership skills, and one of those is time management. So being able to block off the time to actually walk through the plant or to open up the software, the CMMS software, and look at how people are filling it out, you need to be able to set aside time to be attentive and to be assertive, right? So a uh, couple of very key points there. Um, a simple way to think about this whole issue of giving and receiving feedback is that um, I don't know if you've ever taken a, a toddler or a young young kid to a bowling alley. What the what you can do is ask the managers of the bowling alley to put bumpers in the gutters, and so when the child rolls a ball down the alley, it won't go in the gutter. It'll go down. It'll bounce maybe side to side as it goes down the alley, and it'll eventually knock over at least one pin uh, if there's enough momentum for the ball to, when it gets there. Um, but you get the point, the bumpers go in the gutters so that the kid can't throw a gutter ball. And when you're a leader, that's what you should be doing. You should be giving your folks positive and corrective feedback so that they don't throw gutter balls. And so by observing behaviors, being attentive, a leader can guide future behaviors, being assertive, and those result in the right culture. Productive leaders guide behaviors by giving positive and corrective feedback. Most of the time, uh, leaders who, um, uh, who aren't doing this correctly, they tend to give a lot of corrective feedback, not enough positive feedback. So you have to learn to do both. They should be balanced. And then positive feedback is letting people know that they're doing things correctly. That's extremely important. You may think that they know what's correct, but if they're doing something and they're not sure, by giving them positive feedback, it's number one, letting them know that you are being attentive, you're watching what they're doing, and that means that you're reinforcing that those positive behaviors. And corrective feedback is letting people know that what they're doing is not correct, right? And so there are ways to do that correctly. Um, you never wanna embarrass people. You don't wanna correct them in public in front of other people. Um, you want to be respectful while you're doing it. 
but you still need to do it. You can't put it off because it's uncomfortable for you. Okay. So what if you're trying to change an organization, not just your group? Well, all the principles we discussed earlier are all the same. But it's a more complex issue because we need all of the leaders to be using the same principles with their direct reports. This is why accountability is so important. We're going to talk about accountability in a, quite a bit of detail here. So accountability. To be accountable, that's ultimate responsibility, right? So it's required or expected to justify your own actions, but also the actions and decisions of your direct reports. Accountability cannot be delegated, okay? So you cannot, if you're accountable for something, you cannot make somebody else accountable for it. Right? Accountability sticks with the person. Responsibility, on the other hand, is to have control and authority over something or someone and the duty of taking care of it or them. So responsibility can be delegated. So if you're, um, an example would be this, if you're a shop supervisor and uh, you have to create a training schedule for your group, you are accountable for that training schedule, but you could assign somebody within your team who wants the responsibility for doing um, the training schedule, you can delegate that responsibility, right? So, but you cannot delegate the accountability. You're still accountable to make sure that the training schedule is completed, but you're handing off the responsibility to have it done. So accountability, uh, accountable people are ultimately responsible for the actions of those who have been delegated responsibility. So uh, in my book, I, I created a thing called the Organizational Reliability Model. And this is something that I've been working on for probably 15 years, but um, it got refined to the point where I think it makes tons of sense. Um, so I'm going to introduce it here uh, as a model for assigning accountability. So there's two major components to it. If you think about the upper and lower set of circles, the upper level or, or upper group of circles is what I call the proactive improvement realm. And what we do within that realm is that we establish requirements. So the senior person is accountable to assess the opportunities, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. They're accountable to define a solution for, for them and to authorize them and to implement new requirements. They're also uh, accountable to do the same things for modifying current requirements. And when I talk about requirements, I'm talking about guidance, which is policies, plans, processes, procedures, and measures, um, as well as the assets that are required to carry out those um, that guidance. Okay, so the top half of the model, senior people, establishing and modifying requirements. The bottom half of the model is what I call the control and stability realm. And this is where the subordinate person or the direct report to that senior person um, is accountable for executing the current requirements, that's the current guidance with current assets, and for communicating any deficiencies, right? So if they don't have the assets needed to carry out the guidance that they've been given, they are accountable to notify the senior person. 
So let's go through this in just a little bit more detail. What do we mean by these different um, terms? <clears throat> Excuse me. Assess, the first uh, dark green circle there on the top, are the activities to identify, sort, filter, prioritize strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So strengths and weaknesses are from your internal processes. How are you doing things currently? Opportunities and threats are from outside of your group, right? So if you're a maintenance manager, um, if there's an opportunity or threat from, from some other entity within, the, within your company or an outside regulation change or a technological change, something like that, those could represent opportunities or threats. Define are the activities to collect information, analyze, develop, and authorize solutions. So if you have an RCM program, a root cause analysis program, a PMO, um, Lean, Six Sigma, all of those reside within the define circle. They're basically the methodologies that you would use to identify the solutions. Once you pass, you see that assess and define are encompassing are encompassed by another circle. Everything within that inner, um, circle that encompasses assess and define Everything within there um, is just exploratory. You haven't authorized anything to be done yet. You're basically studying it and deciding if you are going to authorize it or not. Once you move outside of that encompassing circle into implement, implement includes, once you've authorized a change, it includes the activities to thoroughly develop the requirements, train, commission, drive to it common practice, right? So again, assess and define or circumscribe by the circle, it indicates that they are identified requirements. And then moving from define to implement signifies that the requirements have been authorized. If we move to the lower half of the circle, guidance are, includes the current policies, plans, processes, procedures, and measures. Assets are the things currently provided to enable carrying out the guidance. And execution is the application of leadership or skills and expertise um, to carry out guidance, uh, current guidance with current assets. Now, I'll say this, uh, when you talk about current guidance and current assets, again, let's say you're a, a maintenance shop supervisor and you're supposed to have 10 direct reports in your shop, but because of attrition, uh, people retired or they left to take another position whatever the reason might be, you went from 10 people in your shop down to seven people. Well, can you still carry out on an eight hour workday with seven people, the same amount of work that you could carry out with 10 people in an eight hour day, right? So you're down three full-time equivalents. Can you get the same amount of work done with the same number of hours? Obviously no. So that's where I talk about the, uh, the subordinate or the direct report also being um, accountable to tell the senior person when there's a deficiency. So the deficiency could be in people, could be in budget, could be uh, maybe you had software, but the company for whatever reason didn't decide to buy the maintenance program for that software, so the updates aren't happening. Um, you know, same thing with PLC controllers, those sorts of things. Uh, could be a special tool, 
maybe they're not paying to get uh, calibration of uh, vibration accelerometers, those sorts of things um, are asset type things, right? So there could also be gaps in guidance. And the gaps that you also see, well, I'll call it ambiguities, gaps, and overlaps in guidance, right? Ambiguity in guidance means that it's not clear what the guidance is talking about. Uh, gaps means that there's something that is not covered by a uh, policy plan, process, procedure, or measure. Or it could be that there's an overlap, meaning that two peer groups or uh, two groups are both assigned accountability to do something, right? Uh, or the responsibility to do something. Um, so those ambiguities, gaps, and overlaps, when those are there, what they tend to do is cause silos and conflict. And so that's why it, I focus a lot of my discussion on um, direction and guidance, right? So direction is mission, vision, values, and objectives. Guidance are kind of how do you achieve those directions? So if your guidance is not clear, then you end up with a lot of ambiguities, gaps, and overlaps. And those are reasons why you also have difficulty in implementing change. And so again, uh, guidance and assets are circumscribed by a circle that indicates that the current requirements, uh, that current requirements and constrain the achievable level of performance, right? So uh, that subordinate group, and again, this could be the top half of the model could apply to the plant manager and the bottom half of the model can apply to um, the direct reports to the plant manager, right? The department heads. So in whatever circumstance you're in, the same theory applies, right? So um, again, on the bottom, guidance and assets are circumscribed by a circle um, and that circle indicates that they are the current requirements, right? And when I say it constrains achievable level of performance, that means you can't get blood from a stone, right? If if you've only given me seven people in a shop that requires 10 people, I can't get all of the guidance done that you're asking me to do, right? So part of that guidance might be your PM program or it might be your condition monitoring program, whatever it might be. So the, uh, and, and you know, in my book and in my workshops, I talk about how do you, how does that uh, subordinate person uh, influence the senior person to make a change, right? Uh, there's a there's a way that I, I talk about um, using the phrase unless otherwise directed, right? <laughs> so uh, basically, if you say I only have seven people, so these things that are in the guidance, I'm going to stop doing because I don't have the people to do it. You basically tell your boss unless otherwise directed, this is what I'm going to do, right? So I'm using my knowledge and my expertise on what I have available. I'm going to make these choices. If you tell me to do something different, then I'll do that. But, you know, so in other words, you have to tell me what things do you not want me to do, right? Okay, so the requirements, the guidance and assets are what I call a double-edged sword, right? So the authorized requirements, once you go from the top half of the model from define into implement, and those go into a common practice, those authorized requirements tell the team members what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it, and with what. But the other side of that sword is that those authorized requirements also commit the senior persons to providing for and supporting those requirements. 
So if you're putting a change process in place and it's all been mapped out exactly how we're going to implement this change, that means that the senior people have to provide the guidance and the requirements that allow you to carry out those changes. So as I said, um, this uh, organizational reliability model applies across each leadership level, right? So the top half of the model is the senior person. The bottom half of the model is the direct report or the junior person in that arrangement. So as an example, if you have the plant manager is the senior person, the department heads being the direct reports. But at the next level, those same department managers are the senior person to the assistant managers that report to them. And each assistant manager has presumably supervisors that are reporting to them. And the supervisors have team members that are reporting to them. So you can see how this cascading um, depiction or this cascading assignment of accountability happens downwards through an organization. And I guess if you think about this, now you can kind of get a sense for why is it that a lot of change projects or implementations either don't get fully implemented or they're not sustained? Because if you don't have a good system that assigns accountability across the leadership levels that are affected by the change, there's not enough foundation to keep things going. So again, these are linked accountabilities across all levels of leadership. And Kind of as I stated earlier, you don't have to change the whole organization. You have to change the behaviors of the people that are your direct reports, right? So if this is a change that's going across the entire organization, the plant manager has to hold the department heads accountable, and that plant manager has to require that their department heads hold their direct reports accountable. Okay. They can do that by being attentive and assertive. By the same token, if you're a shop supervisor and you're trying to implement some new change, maybe it's in how you check out uh, um, critical spares or critical tools, right? Let's say it's critical tools. How, uh, how do you um, keep control over critical tools? Well, if you're a supervisor, if you want to implement this change, you can be attentive and assertive to the people within your shop. Remember, span of control and time management. Those provide you with the capability of being attentive and assertive, okay? So again, if you're the plant manager, don't think about how do I get supervisors in line? Think about how do I get my department heads in line and then give them the marching orders to get their assistant managers in line, right? Tom, I'm seeing a bit of a question here and I'm gonna see if I can paraphrase it correctly. Okay. So. Um, we heard you say that to make change sustainable, accountability has to be consistent across each of these levels. We've also heard you say that you should focus on your direct reports. So mm -hmm. if you see that it's not, accountability isn't consistent above you, then what? <laughs> yeah. So um, if there's a level, let's say the assistant manager level is uh, being the barrier. So uh, what you can do at your level is carry out your accountabilities and your responsibilities to the full extent. And then you can, where there's things that that person above you is not um, supporting, uh, 
you can use that uh, the phrase that I, I mentioned earlier um, unless otherwise directed right that's one way to influence them um, the other way that you can do it uh, is let's say that uh, the assistant manager has six supervisors that report to that person as a group you can come together and then confront confronts probably the wrong word um, discuss with the assistant manager that this is what needs to happen um, the other thing about this is and this is why I, I harp so much on guidance on having good policies plans processes procedures and measures because if those things are written if those things are what the plant manager or the company has ordained as this is what we're going to be doing then you can use that as leverage to go back to that assistant manager and say look this is what the policy is this is what the process is this is what the procedures are if you don't want us to follow these then you need to change the policy plan process or procedure right so we're going to follow what the company is saying that we're going to do because to do otherwise puts yourself at risk right so and again, it's kind of difficult for me to give you a blanket solution that works everywhere, but those are just a couple of ideas on, on how you might consider uh, affecting that barrier, that person that's being the barrier. Thanks, I think that helped answer the question. Okay. Okay, so the second poll question, uh, what would be your, what do you think after listening to my um, presentation, what do you think would be the biggest barriers to actually implementing change? Would it be creating clear guidance about the behaviors that you want to see? Would it be about making sure that uh, requested changes are supported uh, by available assets? Would it be time management, having the time to observe the behaviors and to give feedback? Uh, would it be apprehension about giving positive or corrective feedback? And would it, or would it be focusing on your direct reports and getting them to focus on their direct reports? So take a minute and answer that if you would. And we'll give you a little bit more time on this one, uh, just because there's some some reading to be done. Um, and our question here is, what will be your biggest barrier to actually implementing change at your facility? And we're looking at, uh, again, selecting just the one that you think is your biggest barrier. So is it creating clear guidance about the behaviors that you want to see? Is it making sure that changes are supported by available assets? Is it appropriate time management so that you can observe behaviors and give feedback? Is it some apprehension about giving positive corrective feedback? Or is it the ability to focus on your direct, on your direct reports and get them to focus on theirs? So I'm going to give you another moment or two because I know there's a lot of reading here, but we've had some questions come through that I think are related to this. Uh, and we should have time at the end, folks, to get some more questions in. So I uh, keep, keep entering those questions into the poll tool. If you've already voted, go ahead and put those in now um, because we'll come around to those at the end. And if not, we'll send written answers into you. So we have just about 60% of the votes in. So I'm gonna wait just another 10 seconds here. And then I'm going to close the poll. 
and share the results. So Tom, we have 23% of the audience saying that their biggest barrier will be creating clear guidance. 32% say that it will be making sure that changes are supported by available assets. 22% say it'll be time enough time, time management to observe the behaviors. 8% are apprehensive about giving positive and corrective feedback and 15% say it'll be focusing on their directs. So what do you think about that? Oh, that's very interesting. It's a pretty good spread and I'm, I'm happy to hear that most people uh, don't feel apprehensive about giving positive and corrective feedback. I think that's mm -hmm. great. Um, a lot of times I'll, I'll get the impression that that number should be much higher, um, but that's, that's very encouraging. Um, making sure that the requested changes are supported by available assets. That's, if you um, think about it, right, again, you can't get blood from a stone. So you can only put guidance in place to the extent that it's gonna be supported by the assets that are needed to support it, right? So, um, and then the two that came in pretty close uh, at 23 and 22% creating clear guidance uh, about the behaviors you wanna see, that's very well tied to answer number two, making sure that the requested changes are supported. That's how you get the balance, right? So when you create the guidance, you have to be thinking about what assets it's going to need. And if you remember the organizational reliability model, that's why those things happen in the assess, define, and implement phases and why you don't move be beyond the define phase unless you have the authorization, unless you have the authority to um, get those assets and to provide the training and the coaching that drives that implementation. And again, time management to observe the behaviors. I think most people feel that there's not enough hours in the day to get everything done that they need to get done. But I would say if you study time management and you think about what are the most important things to get done, then uh, get control of your calendar. Um, I know, easy for me to say sitting here in Satellite Beach on a on a uh, webinar, right? Uh, but I've seen it, I've seen it work well uh, when you think about where are you spending your time and are you spending your time on important things or unimportant things? And uh, are you um, able to plan and schedule your time? So um, all in all, uh, it's it's very interesting. I like the, uh, the spread. Um, and then focusing on your direct reports to getting them uh, to focus on theirs. Uh, Again, that's just simply having good uh, leadership capability within yourself. So uh, what I would pose back to the folks that um, put in their responses is that the question before you now is, you know, how are you gonna solve these behaviors for yourselves, right? How are you gonna make these a smaller barrier uh, to implementing a change? Thank you. Okay, okay, so uh, I wanna get onto the accountability takeaways. What I would say is that accountability cannot be delegated, right? So responsibility can be delegated, but not accountability. And remember the organizational reliability model, it helps you to visualize the interrelationships between accountability at each level of leadership, and it applies across each level of leadership. Senior persons are accountable to provide direction, guidance, and assets and junior people are accountable to execute and to communicate deficiencies. The senior person, again, remember that if you're that senior person 
and you're trying to implement a change, you need to start with the end in mind. What behaviors do you want to see? The second thing is to communicate what you want those behaviors to look like, and you communicate it by putting it into policies, plans, processes, procedures, and measures. And then delegate responsibility to direct reports. They need to be attentive and assertive to guide behaviors. Give them reinforcing and corrective feedback. And make sure that you expect cascading accountability and responsibility at each level of leadership. Each leader with direct reports has to be attentive and assertive. And each leader has to give reinforcing and corrective feedback. So that's what I had for you today. Um, Leah, are there more questions? There certainly are. I'm, I'm going to try to get to as many of them as we have time for, starting with this one. What contributes more to sustainable cultural change? Is it addressing the processes or the people issues? Hmm. So what I would say is, uh, I would say the people issues uh, in that uh, leaders are people, right? So again, getting the accountability right and getting the individual leadership capabilities right, um, I think is critical. Um, so I used to say that in maintenance and reliability, there were four levels of things that you had to deal with to have a, a world-class program. Um, I came to the conclusion that there's a, a fifth that's actually the most fun foundational of all, and that is getting your organizational reliability and productive leadership capability. That's, your, that's the basis. Beyond that, uh, you need to start getting the second step then becomes uh, getting your asset data. You know, what are the assets we have in the plant? Hierarchy, criticality, configuration management. The third is to have a good work management process. Um, the fourth would be to have a good uh, predictive, uh, preventive maintenance program. And then the fifth is having the higher level reliability engineering processes, right? So being able to do uh, viable analysis and non-homogeneous Poisson processes and those sorts of things so that you can zero in uh, on the recurring reliability issues. So I would say that the people issues uh, are more important because if you solve those, then the process issues can fall into place. Very good, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, here's another question for you. How long does it take cultural change to have an effect? So. I'll read the question directly. How long does it take for cultural change in the company that is implementing a CMMS for the first time at uh, its 50 year above power plant? Yeah, so I would say that if you're implementing, let's say from the sound of this across uh, a maintenance department and a power plant, um, you know, 30 to 100 people, something like that, um, to really, to get the right behaviors happens pretty quickly. Uh, but to have enough repetition of those behaviors so that they become habits and so that that becomes the culture, that takes longer. So I would say uh, in a lot of the implementations that I have done, you can get the behaviors to be correct within fairly short period of time, within about 30 days. Um, but in order for it to become habit, I think you need a, at least 18 months uh, to continue to repeat the same uh, uh, the same behaviors, right? So that's, again, that's why I focus a lot on uh, when you try to implement a change, 
it's the attentiveness and the accountability or, or the uh, assertiveness that that direct the, the leader of direct reports has to be attentive and assertive to make sure people continue to follow right now you can over that 18 months you may not uh, have to be um, out and about assertive and attentive as frequently as you do in the first month but you still have to do it um, so in other words if you're looking at a particular you know as i mentioned uh, closing out work orders with the right data right so in that first six months, you're scrutinizing almost everyone that gets put in. Towards the end of that month, you're starting to slack off of that a bit. But over that 18 months, you still want to be looking at that maybe weekly or biweekly um, because you want people to know you're still looking at it. So that's what I'd say. And I want to remind folks while we have this slide up on screen that you are welcome to contact Tom at the email address that he has provided there. There's also more resources on his site. I recommend following him on his plant services I column because his articles are always very educational. And Tom, do you have training opportunities coming up? Yeah, so thank you. Um, yeah, I've uh, started with the, you know, the pandemic and everything. I used to do uh, in-plant uh, two-day workshops. Um, so I'm in the process now of converting that to an online training course. And I'd like to offer the uh, people on this uh, uh, webinar that if they would like to be a beta tester of that course, and it's going to be probably three to four hours long uh, in modules. Um, I'll offer uh, folks here for $150 if you sign up for it. Um, it's probably going to uh, increase down the road, but the first 50 people that sign up for it, um, when it comes out in about a month, month and a half, um, I'll offer it to them for $150, and uh, they just need to shoot me an email, and we'll get them hooked up. Okay. All right. I think we have time for one more question. Um, and we, we have several more in the, the queue here, so we'll come back around and provide written answers. But yeah. um, if you could wrap this up, um, someone's asking about getting buy-in. So they think that the biggest challenge is getting buy-in, and I think that you've probably addressed that, but how would you apply your approach to getting buy-in? Yeah, so um, you know, first thing I would say about that is I think too many organizations try too hard to get a good, you know, to get a kumbaya from everybody. Um, you know, quite frankly, at the end of the day, it's a business or it's an organization that has a mission. And um, you want to you wanna make it a logical argument as to why you're doing what you're doing. Um, you certainly want to be open to feedback. So when you're designing the policies, plans, processes, procedures, and measures, you want all the input of the people that it's going to be affecting for sure. But at the end of the day, once the decisions have been made, and this is the direction we're going, um, you should also have a thing that's called a communication plan so that everybody is aligned, all of the leadership team members are aligned on why we're doing things, how are we doing it, what are the communication channels that you're going to be using um, to get that message uh, filtered down through the organization. So. To get buy-in, I mean, th this is a huge topic, right? So it could be if there's uh, a very small thing, like how do we set these valves or these switches for this production line to get maximum production? Well, 
you know, if you got two competing ideas there, you can say, well, let's try it this way for the for the next month, and then we're going to try it that way for the next month, and whichever way turns out best is what we're going to do. The essence of that is you're letting people, you're letting the data show what it is, right? Um, if it's for an entire organization, again, you've studied it, you've gone through a proper uh, vetting process, you've gone through a proper vetting process so that uh, everybody understands why we're doing what we're doing, um, and you you make that clear, you make it a logical argument. Um, at the end of the day, there's going to be some percentage of people who are not going to get on board no matter how good your argument is. And uh, I love uh, this guy, Joe Kuhn, who is, uh, he has a YouTube um, presence and he's got over a hundred short videos. And what he would say about that, uh, he was a former plant manager. What he would say about that is at the end of the day, supervisors and direct reports will need to fall in line. And part of leadership sometimes is giving people uh, punitive measures if they eventually never get online, right? So uh, if somebody is becoming that much of a barrier and what you're asking them to do is reasonable, logical, well thought out, then at some point you might have to make a position change. Right? I think you just so, answered several questions in once there. Thank you very much. Sure. <laughs> if I can get you to forward on one slide, please don't hang up yet, folks. I want to close off on a couple of things. Firstly, I, we have another presentation coming up on October 28th with Scott Ross of, of Fluke Reliability, and he'll be talking to a question that we've been getting a lot recently, which is about setting the ground properly for implementing CMMS, just like this question we had earlier, right? And Scott is an expert at this, so he'll be discussing aligning your organization for successful CMMS implementation, so we really hope you'll join us. It's going to be very productive. And then if you'll forward one more time, Tom, we also have another opportunity coming up uh, on November 17th through 19th with the Accelerate Conference. So we've been doing this for years and it's grown so popular that we just couldn't not have the conference this year. So it's going virtual and the, uh, the online environment is really good. And of course the presenters are going to be excellent. So for those of you who haven't attended before, Accelerate is an instruction focused conference for maintenance professionals who are working toward improved reliability. There'll be sessions on all the different maintenance reliability strategies we've talked about on this webinar series, plus specifics on CMS and data monitoring and other tools. So we really do hope you'll join us for that. And you can follow the link there on screen. And then Tom, if you'll forward one more time. After I close today's webinar, hang on a minute because a survey will appear and we'd love for you to answer the quick questions. It won't take very long. Your feedback will help us keep the, the webinar content relevant and helpful. Everyone who completes the survey will receive a copy of today's presentation. And there's a question there. If you'd like to receive a certificate of attendance, answer yes and we'll send one to you. Then remember, the recorded webinar will be available on excelx.com within a day or two. So that concludes today's presentation and thank you very much, Tom. I can hear the audience listening very hard. It was such a pleasure having you with us today. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity and I hope uh, as I close out my columns and plant services all the time, go forth and do great things. Indeed, indeed. Well, I'm going to close the webinar now. Thank you very much, everyone, and I hope that you join us next time.